So the floor is yours. All right. Uh, I, I, I asked her to please throw me some slow pitch softballs oh, okay. over home plate. So we'll see what she came up with. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> okay. Well, don't be. These are all these are all slow pitch softballs to you. Um, these are not personal questions, by the way. These are theological questions. So not that he doesn't, he knows that, but you guys don't. So I'm not going to ask anything embarrassing or... Um, you can. I, I know. That might be fun, well, actually. <laughs> depending on how you answer the first one, I may change it up. Right. Call it audible. Um, so the first one is, um, if we look around the world, uh, we see so many terrible things, like unexpected death, sickness, divorce, natural disasters, loneliness, um, mental illness, poverty, job loss. Why does God allow bad things to happen? Yeah, that's a question that I know uh, all of us at some point and for some reason have asked. I have found myself asking at different times in my life when things are hard and heavy, um, God is either in complete control of all things and he's not good or he's good, but not in complete control of all things, because there's no way that he can be both in control of all things and perfectly good. It's impossible. Okay. That was, I, that is a struggle that has been an ongoing struggle for people, uh, and has been for a very long time. Um, philosophers and theologians for generations have been trying to make sense of how a good God could allow evil in this world. It's hard to believe in God's goodness when you look around, as Stacy just said, um, at all of the hard and heavy stuff that goes on in our broken world. And more closely to home, all of the hard and heavy stuff that goes on in our broken lives. Um, as someone who has spent the majority of his adult life studying these things, wrestling with these things, communicating these things. Um, I have found myself, even as a believer in God's goodness and in God's complete control of all things, questioning why God does things. I mean, some of my uh, most honest prayers have been prayers where I have been screaming at God, frustrated with God, angry at God because things in my life were very hard. They were very heavy and I couldn't understand why he was allowing this to happen. So it's a very, it's a universal question. Um, and, you know, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said that faith trusts God even when it cannot trace him. And I think there's a lot of comfort there. Um, when I look around at the world, for instance, and I see all of the brokenness, when it comes to God, I have a choice to make in terms of what I believe. I can either believe that God is in complete control of this stuff, or I believe that God is incapable of stopping this stuff, that he's not strong enough or big enough to keep this stuff from happening. Uh, I find not only personally that it is way more comforting to believe that God is in complete control of all this stuff and he's allowing these things for reasons that are beyond my awareness, beyond my comprehension, I find more comfort in that than thinking to myself that God is incapable of stopping something like this. Um, 
And so one of the biggest theological questions that people have been asking for a long, long, long time, for instance, is um, if God created all things good and he put Adam and Eve, who he created good, in a perfect garden, um, and at that point there was no sin in the world, then what was it that caused Adam and Eve to want to sin? Okay, what was it? Now, we know what causes us to want to sin because we're born with a sinful nature, but they weren't. So, you know, what's, what's that all about? Well, um, the second question that typically flows from that question is, um, why would God allow that? Okay, now, there is no answer to the first question. Okay, theologians have been wrestling with that question for years, and a theologian that uh, I admired for many years was a man by the name of R.C. Sproul who died uh, uh, three or four years ago. And he said that is the one theological question he has been incapable of even scratching the surface of an answer to. What was it in Adam and Eve that made them want to sin if they were born in a state of unsin and they were put in a perfect garden by a perfect God? Uh, there is no answer to that question. That is a mystery, okay? And the Bible doesn't answer that question. Uh, the Bible, in some senses, does answer the second question. Why would God allow sin to enter into this world and into our lives? And I think probably the best answer that I can come up with for that is that there are certain things about God that we would never know, certain things about his character that we would never know had he not allowed sin into this world. For instance, we would know nothing about the radicality of God's forgiveness because there would be nothing to forgive. We would know nothing about the redeeming love of God because there would be nothing to redeem. In other words, God is so all-wise and all-powerful that he even employs bad things for his good ends, okay? So um, it was it, this was Charles Spurgeon who said, omnipotence has servants everywhere. And omnipotence is a big theological word that means that God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. That there is nothing more powerful than God. God defines power. God is all-powerful. And when he said omnipotence has servants everywhere, what he meant was God employs everything and anything uh, to meet his good ends. So in that sense, even the devil, unbeknownst to him, works for God. Uh, that all of the bad things that happen in this world and all of the things that happen in our lives, the bad things that are done to us and the bad things that we do to others, all of that brokenness that marks our everyday life is in some way, shape, or form being used by God to bring about something good, something good in our lives, something good in the lives of other people. And I think we find this anchored biblically in Romans chapter 8 uh, when the Apostle Paul says that God works all things out for his glory and our good. All things, not just the good things. Uh, in fact, I can testify to the fact, and I'm sure you can too, that it's typically when things are hardest and when things are heaviest, when I am at my worst, when I am feeling the weakest, 
Those are the moments when God becomes more real to me than when I'm feeling self-sufficient and strong and good and clean. In those moments, because I'm a sinner, I begin thinking I'm a pretty good guy and I can do this on my own. But it's in those moments where God forces me to face myself and forces me to face the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of the people in my life, that I realize just how desperate I am. And that in so many ways, is the good that God is bringing about. The primary good that God is bringing about in our lives is a deeper awareness of how dependent we are on him, that he is God and we are not. There is so much freedom in knowing that we are not God and that God is God, that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And let me add this just to conclude. Um, I think sometimes we... We come to the Bible with questions, a variety of different questions. And um, I, I preached a series of sermons when we first reopened last year called Believe. I think it was just six or seven weeks. And one of the points that I made in that sermon series was that um, the Bible should inform the questions that we ask. In other words, the Bible doesn't just give us the answers that we need. And oftentimes the Bible doesn't give us the answers that we want or the answers that we need. Um, but the Bible does reframe the questions that we ask. And so that being said, I think we have to speak where the Bible speaks and we have to be content with where the Bible doesn't speak. So the Bible doesn't answer the question about how did, why did Adam and Eve sin? It doesn't answer that question. The Bible does answer the question, why does, why does God allow hard things to happen in this world? Why, does, why did God allow sin to enter into this world? And I think that we have to, at some level, come to realize, not just come to realize, but be okay with the fact that um, our minds are finite, our thoughts are finite, God's thoughts are infinite, his thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. And so when we are asking questions about God or asking questions of God, we have to remember that um, there's so little that we even have the capacity to comprehend. Um, and therefore, uh, I mentioned this a couple Wednesday nights ago, there, is a, um, there was a, a Dutch theologian by the name of Herman Bovink who wrote a big, thick book uh, called Dogmatics, which is an old-fashioned word for theology, um, back in the early 1900s. And in the introduction to that book, he said, now this is a guy who was incredibly brilliant, very smart, smarter than all of us put together. Uh, and he said, um, the deepest commitment we must have in a study of God is a commitment to mystery. In other words, there are certain things we're just not going to understand. Uh, there are certain things that we're just not going to be able to figure out. Um, and, and that's okay. We can actually find a lot of rest in that and a lot of freedom in that. Uh, there is rest in not having to know everything and having to figure everything out. Um, faith is not irrational, okay? It's not faith against reason or reason against faith. Faith is not irrational. It doesn't go against reason, but faith is supra-rational. In other words, it goes beyond reason. When our brains stop, because we can't make sense of things anymore, that doesn't mean that God's brain has stopped. Um, so I just think there's a tremendous amount of comfort in being able to say, especially if someone comes to you and they're suffering 
and they're going through something hard. The worst thing you can do is what Job's friends did to him, and that is give some cliche answer about, well, God is good and he's working all things out for good. Don't say that, okay? Just, just weep with those who weep. I've said this before, and I think we're going to study this in the spring, the book of Job, but... Um, but I've said this before, but Job's friends, if you know the story of Job, he lost everything, everything, okay? Uh, and uh, his friends came to comfort him. And it's, the Bible says that for the first seven days, they simply sat with him on the ground and wept with him. They tore their clothes and they shaved their heads and they simply sat there and wept with him. They didn't open their mouth. And when they did open their mouth seven days later, uh, what they said was just horrible, okay? I mean, absolutely horrible. And so I've always said Job's friends were great counselors until they opened their mouth. I think there's a lot of wisdom to know that when someone comes to you and they're sad and they're broken and they're angry or they're suffering and struggling in some way, shape, or form, offering some you know, cliche, Christianized answer is not what's needed in that moment. What's needed in that moment is just to weep with those who weep and to say, I don't get it either. I'm sorry. Just that's it. So I'm always confused by the fact that it took them seven days to come up with the worst question. Yeah. Well, they weren't Sad. even asking questions. They were making statements, <laughs> <Right>. horrible statements. <laughs> what um, did you do, Joe? You know, one other thing about the book of Job, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, spoil the surprise that hopefully will uh, come out in the spring, but um, Job never, God never, we, we, as the reader, if you're familiar with the book of Job, the first five verses of Job tell us that Job was a good guy. You know, I mean, he wasn't, all of his suffering did not come as the result of bad behavior that God was punishing. Okay. We know that. Um, Job's friends, however, assumed that it was. So Job's friends were saying things like, okay, Job, we know how the world works. Good people get good stuff and bad people get bad stuff. You're clearly getting bad stuff. What did you do wrong? And Job is saying, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not suffering because I did something wrong. Um, and, uh, and I think it's important to know that when you get to the end of the book of Job, okay, Job's friends and Job are battling back and forth for 30 some odd chapters and God remains silent, just listening in on their ridiculous conversation, talking about things they don't understand. Um, and then God in chapter 38 speaks up and he says, okay, you guys have questioned me for however long you have been. Now let me question, he says to Job, brace yourself like a man and let me question you. Where were you when I was laying the earth's foundations? Where were you when I was telling the lightning where to strike and the thunder where to roll? Where were you when I was creating sea creatures at the bottom of the ocean that no human eye will ever see? I created them for my pleasure. Where were you? And of course, Job responds by going, okay, okay, I, I call, you know, I cry uncle, I give up. Surely I have been speaking about things way beyond my job description, okay, um, way beyond my pay grade. And so, and, and the interesting thing about it is God never tells Job why he's suffering, never. He never says, listen, Job, we the reader know the devil went to God and said, hey, Job only worships you because you've given him a lot of good stuff. And God says, okay, you can take away his stuff, and I'll show you that he worships me for me. Well, God never tells that to Job. Never. He never reveals that. Job never gets an answer from God as to why he suffered and lost everything. Never. Um, what he says at the end, after God reveals himself to Job, 
Job says, before my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. In other words, the answer to Job's why question was simply God revealing who he was, and that was enough for Job. To assume that answers will relieve us of our pain is absurd. We, we know that. I mean, you can, you can lose a child or go through a divorce or go through something tragic, lose a loved one, um, and someone could give you the most comprehensive explanation for why that happened. That does not relieve the pain. Um, so explanations in so many different ways are a substitute for trust. Um, it's just another way of saying God is big and we are small, and there's a tremendous amount of freedom and comfort in that. Thank you, Pastor Tullian. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you were going to close that answer, like 10 minutes ago, I had the perfect segue into a question. <laughs> but, but so going back to when you were talking, <laughs> you were talking about the Bible specifically. And this is a question that we've gotten via social media messages, emails. And it, uh, I'm taking this from one of those. I grew up in a Christian home going to church and learning about the Bible in Sunday school. I believed the Bible was totally true until the last few years when many people in churches and in society have raised the question of whether or not the Bible is all true. Does the Bible contain mistakes? Is it all true? Yes. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> all right, I'll speak to that for just a minute. Um. <laughs> AKA 13 minutes. minutes. Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, as we know, the Bible has been translated and passed down through generations. Um, and so it's understandable that one might conclude that there have to be some mistakes in the Bible after, I mean, my gosh, if you and I have a conversation about something and that conversation is translated for 300 years, it's only logical or reasonable to think that perhaps the conversation that we receive 300 years later is not an accurate reflection of the one that originally happened, okay? I get that argument. Um, now, the, the people who I've encountered over the years who have... Um, leveled the argument against the Bible that it is, that it contains contradictions, um, that it, it doesn't tell a unified story, that the God of the Old Testament is very different than the God of the New Testament, and so on and so forth. I've never encountered anybody who levels that objection at the Bible, who has, who levels that objection as a result of serious academic study and research of the Bible how it came to be, how it was translated, uh, historical and archeological developments over the years that prove the Bible's reliability and so on and so forth. Um, so uh, theologians for many years have talked about the Bible's infallibility. That's a big word, which means that the Bible, um, the Bible contains no, or no, inerrancy is the idea that the Bible contains no error, inerrancy. Infallibility says that the Bible can contain no error because the God who inspired it is also the God who oversaw uh, its current form, okay? We believe that, 
We believe that uh, there are things in the Bible that we can't understand. There are things in the Bible we may not like. There's a handful of things in the Bible that I don't understand and a handful of things in the Bible that I wish weren't there, okay? Um, I think, to be honest, we would have to all agree that there are some things in the Bible we just don't like. It doesn't seem to fit into who we believe God to be or whatever. Um, and I think it's, it's important to recognize and to realize that the Bible is a, is a God-made book. It's not a, a man-made book. Um, that so much of what we think about the Bible is influenced by our lives, our upbringing, the world that we grow up, the world that we've grown up in, our experiences, all. We bring all of ourselves and all of our presuppositions and preconceived notions to the Bible. Um, and so we have to obviously take that into consideration and realize. But it is a great comfort to me to know that while people all over the world may say, God said this, or God said that, or God wants this for your life, or this is God's will for your life, or whatever the case may be, um, that there's one place that I can go and hear God speak clearly and loudly and compellingly, um, that there is a place where I can go where I know this isn't just the opinion of my neighbor or the opinion of my friend or the opinion of my mother or my brother or my wife or my son or daughter or whatever. This isn't even just the opinion of my pastor, okay? Which is one of the reasons why here, uh, what's, what is most typical in terms of my own commitment to preaching is I'm taking our church through books of the Bible, I'm not just getting, I'm saying I'm going to do a four-week series on, um, you know, uh, how to have a better marriage, okay? And then try to find some Bible verses that fit what I want to say. That's, that's, that's not what we do here, and it's not what we will do here. Uh, the Bible dictates what we know, understand, believe, that sort of thing. And so I want to hear what God has to say. Um, and then you guys are responsible to uh, check what I'm saying against what the Bible says, always. Um, that's always important to do. Um, and so I, I trust it. I have. I was forced in both college and graduate school to study all of the boring books and documents about the reliability of the Bible and the origin of the Bible and how we got it and all that stuff. And that would take two hours to answer that. Um, but I, if you are interested in that subject, there are a bunch of books and resources that I can recommend to you um, that have been written uh, and developed for years and years and years uh, that make not just a compelling case for the fact that the Bible is true um, and that it's reliable, uh, but also that there is historical and archaeological proof that this is the most reliable document we have that has been preserved for as long as it's been preserved. What, what's your favorite version? Uh, the one that I preach from is the English Standard Version. Um, the ESV. The ESV, yep. But, uh, but I like a lot of versions. I think it's important to have a lot of different translations um, because sometimes the variation with a word gives deeper insight um, into what the verse means or what the passage means. Uh, let me, this may be a little boring, but uh, let me speak to the issue of Bible translation for a second. Um, so uh, there are primarily, predominantly, two translation philosophies 
that when a group of scholars get together to come up with a new translation of the Bible, they adopt one of two philosophies, okay? Uh, one philosophy is, uh, the, it's called dynamic equivalence. And what that means is that um, they, are, they are essentially translating the Bible thought for thought. Because when you translate anything from one language to another, it can be kind of choppy, it can be hard, it's not smooth. Uh, there are unique idiosyncrasies to each language and nuances to each language. And so dy the dynamic equivalent translation philosophy is the idea that uh, the Bible is translated thought for thought so that it can stay as um, uh, clean and flow as well when we read it uh, that will make it more enjoyable when we read it. The other translation philosophy is called formal equivalence, and that's not a thought for thought philosophy. That's a word for word philosophy. So with, and that's a, we're going to, we're going to rigidly translate the Bible word for word. Um, now, both are incredibly valuable. The formal equivalent philosophy is valuable because it's incredibly accurate. Uh, the dynamic equivalent philosophy is helpful because it is more readable. So uh, what I like about the ESV is that it adopted a word-for-word -word or formal equivalence translation philosophy, but then they made it more readable. Uh, so it kind of combined the best of both worlds. The NIV, for instance, the New International Version uh, or the New Living Translation, that's a thought-for-thought -thought, um, translation. Uh, a word-for-word, -word, an example of a word-for-word -word translation would be uh, the New American Standard Version, uh, the King James Version or the New King James Version. Um, so they're all, they're all beneficial and they're all useful and I think they're all necessary. Now you have other, um, they're not translations, uh, they're called paraphrases like the, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> Time to quit. Okay, I hope you guys have a nice day. And, uh, uh, but the, the, uh, there's another, so like, uh, the Living Bible or the Message, which I highly recommend if you're familiar with the Message, it's very readable and excellent. Um, those aren't translations. A translation begins with the original language and translates it into English. Um, the Message or the Living Bible or versions like that, um, those aren't translations. Those are paraphrases. And what makes those different than translations is that while a translation begins with the original language and translates it into English, a paraphrase begins with the English translations and then just makes it more readable. So if you ever read the message, it's incredibly readable. It's one of the things I recommend the most when someone's just beginning to read the Bible, because the Bible can be a hard book to understand. Um, and so I say, buy the message, get a copy of the message, and begin there, and read there, and then you can sort of graduate beyond that. We can do one more. <laughs> I mean, no, we're out. I mean, I can stop. Okay. You guys, I mean, we'll stop. You want to stop? Okay, look, at, there's some people are saying, yes, yeah, please, I'm hungry. Please, Other I'm people, praying for it. Yeah, um, one more. Okay, well, this is, this is going to be a real easy one. Um, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful and has already planned every moment for every human for all time, then why should we pray? Yeah, yeah that, thanks for saving that for last, honey. <laughs> it actually wasn't all right, last. Guys, we had two more, but Recline in your three. chairs, cross your legs. We're going to be here for a while. <laughs> Um, maybe Ray and Kathy, you could go get some snacks and pass them out from the cafe. Thank you. You at home, you can go to the restroom. That's and then a come big back. question. That's not a small question. It's a big, big question because it really touches the surface, scratches the surface 
of a very probing, profound, deep, philosophical, theological question uh, like predestination, okay, which we're not going to discuss in any meaningful way this morning uh, because that would take much longer. Yeah, I didn't than, say that word. No, but that's... But that is implied in the question. So um, if God has, if God's in control of all things um, and has in one sense determined all things, either uh, passively by allowing it or actively, um, then why pray? Great question, okay? Um, The shortest answer I can give you is, That while God, the Bible makes it clear that God ordains the ends of all things, but he also ordains the means by which those ends are accomplished. And in the Bible, God's ends and God's means are so intertwined that if certain means are not employed, those ends will not happen. And that's a mystery, okay? Um, So for instance, God uh, God has determined that eating is the means by which we satisfy the end of hunger pains, okay? We're hungry, we eat. Um, Which we all have right now. Yes, yeah. Um, However, um, if we we don't eat, the hunger pains are not satisfied, okay? So God has, um, God has, you could say it this way, that God's ends and God's means are so inseparable that without the means, the ends don't come to pass. Now, you could say, okay, well, yes, but if we don't employ the means, then that would indicate that God ordained that we didn't employ the means. Okay, yada, 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 yada. We can go on a philosophical rabbit trail for a long, long time about this stuff. Just know this, that the Bible makes it plain on the one hand, that God is in complete control of all things. Thank God for that. He also makes it plain, thank God, that our prayers are effective, that our prayers matter, that what we pray is not just simply uh, a mechanical, robotical thing. It is something real. It's active. And more importantly, our prayers, um, our prayers enhance our own relationship to God. I think that's one part of prayer that we oftentimes overlook, um, that when we go to God and speak, uh, it enhances our relationship. It deepens our relationship. Um, So it's not just that we pray so that certain things will happen, but something big is happening just by virtue of the fact that we're praying, which is a good thing. Um, So just I think this is one of those places where we go, the Bible speaks about this, and it doesn't speak about this. It speaks about this in the sense that it says, um, God is in control of all things, and our prayers matter. Okay? And you go, now, hold on a second. That, that's all it says. And we just have to be content with that mystery and go, okay, our prayers matter, and yet God is in control of all things. He's, he's, he's in total control of all things. Um, what the Bible doesn't answer is, okay, well, how is it that God's ordination of all things, how is it that God's determination of all things is worked in and through our free choices and prayers? That is a mystery that the Bible does not answer. 
It says that we are responsible people, that we make choices every day, that those choices have consequences, both good and bad. It says that when we pray for people, things happen. It says all of that stuff. How is God's, um, how is God's uh, decree or ordination of all things, how, do th- how does that work in and through our free choices and prayers? That is a mystery left up to the mind of God. And I'm just, I'm sort of, I had a professor in college once say, it's, it's much harder to live in the center of biblical tension than it is to go to unbiblical extremes. And I think we see that throughout history. People who don't, they can't live with the tension. They can't live with the mystery of it. And so they go to unbiblical extremes. Um, and I'm content to go, I don't know how it all works. I just know that I find tremendous comfort in knowing what, in, in believing what the Bible says about God being in complete control of all things. And I'm also moved by his spirit to pray all the time and that those prayers matter and that they're effective. And I'm, I'm just, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. That's a, that's a good enough answer for me because that's the only answer that the Bible Even gives. Jesus spent time, much time praying mm-hmm. to and, God and in he, the garden. And he ended his with prayer the, in right. the garden with God, if there is, Father, if there is any other way for this to happen, make it happen in another way. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, which is always an appropriate end to our prayers. God, I want this for my spouse. I want this for my child. I want this for my life. I want this for my church. I want this for my friends. I want this for my parents. That's what I want. Don't be afraid to be bold and pray and ask God for things that you want. But then it's also wise to have the disposition to say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Uh, It is a grace from God that he has not answered all of my prayers. (laughs) That he's not given me every, he has answered all my prayers. Sometimes the answer has been no or wait. But it is a gift from God, a grace from God that he has not given me everything I've asked for. And so J.I. Packer, another theologian that I admired very much, Um, while he was alive and still in his death, uh, he said that God doesn't answer every prayer we pray, but he does answer every prayer we should have prayed. Mm -hmm. That's so comforting to me. Like Romans 8 says, that even when we can't muster up the words, when we don't even know what to pray for, the spirit of God in us is taking prayers we should be praying before the throne of God. That's huge. So we're covered. Okay, even when you pray bad prayers, um, and I could argue that there is no prayer that is bad, um, but um, so anyway. <laughs> well, I think I feel like our... I should ask you a question. Probably not, but I don't know what I would ask. <laughs> I don't either. That's why I said probably not. Um, those are those are good questions. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah.